Exodus chapter 2, we're going to be in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Wow. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rule, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Let's pray. God, we ask blessing upon your word. You have spoken in the past. You've already spoken today in the reading of your scriptures. May you now speak in the preaching. Give life and light. Give the words of life, O oh God, help us to see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's a simple question. One I've asked myself probably more times than I can count. One time in particular, it kind of springs to mind. Shortly after Nikki and I were married, I was a youth pastor and was in charge of leading a mission trip to London, to the UK. 
and not a big deal. I've spent months in the UK. I have no issue with that. I'm comfortable in London, comfortable traveling, comfortable running a mission trip. Except this time, as the plane wheels were touching down, the bombs were going off from the terrorists. We had one that went off about a block, maybe a half a block from our hotel. We didn't know that, of course. You know, didn't have cell phones that weren't working in that way, you know, and just traveling. And as we're on the bus, looking around and noticing why uh, the military presence is severely different than the last time I was here like a year ago. Like, what on earth? Why are there so many automatic weapons everywhere? And finally, one of the other leaders and I went up front and started talking to the, uh, the bus driver, find out that bombs have been going off one right next to the hotel. So we're stuck in London for three days with a city that shut down with no public transportation because they're bombing buses. So we tried to go see the sites and go wandering. And at one point we went, it was on a Friday, Friday morning, went to the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. And it's always busy on Fridays, but this one, because the city was shut down, everybody was there. There were probably, I don't know, 8,000 people watching the changing of the guard. I mean, it was 40 people deep, the entire width of the castle. Uh, And that's when the bomb threat showed up. They sent in the mounted police saying, there's a bomb, everybody run, everybody run. And it was weird because normally police are like, be calm. This was not that. It was they sent the chargers, the horses into the crowd and told everybody to flee. And, of course, I'm taking teenage girls who, uh, at the time, had no sense of direction, though they're brilliant now about that. So the other leader and I just grabbed ponytails and dragged. <laughs> and fleeing into the park, horses chasing us, not knowing when we were going to blow up. I, re- I distinctly remember thinking, how on earth did I get here? Yeah. Like, out of all the places and all the things, how on earth did I get here? How did we get here? Again, I've asked myself that question. I've asked myself that question stuck in a mountain pass next to a train in the Andes Mountains in the middle of the summer. How on earth did I get here? I'd love to say that question is only reserved for silly stories that end well. But I watch the news. I have to kind of read the news, keep tabs on what's happening in our country. And I find myself constantly asking the question about our nation. How on earth did we get here? I saw an article yesterday. This was a serious article contending that somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40% of Americans believe that Santa needs to be gender neutral or a woman. I was reminded of the famous Lou Reed song, Boys Will Be Girls, Girls Will Be Boys. It's a mixed up, muddled up, messed up world. How on earth did we get here? How did we get here? So that's the question that kind of resonates through this portion of Exodus chapter 2. How did we get here? You know, Genesis ends with what you think would be a kind of a high note. It ends with what we think will be a good thing. We, we have Joseph. Joseph is one of the great heroes of the faith. He's one of the few guys that we see doesn't do the dumb thing. Even when propositioned by an older woman, he does the right thing and does it correctly. Immediately flees. He's righteous in all ways. And then you get into Exodus and all the wheels come off. They're in Egypt. 
They multiply and persecution intensifies. They multiply and persecution intensifies. They multiply and slavery happens. They multiply and slavery intensifies. And you have to ask the question, how do we get what, what on earth is going on? And chapter two begins and you think, oh, this is it. This is the way out. We have a redeemer. We have a savior. We have a hope. We have a baby who's born who is noted everywhere he's born that he was a beautiful and unique, healthy baby. Again, what what Moses must have looked like. He was a handsome fellow, a Gerber baby of, of sorts. This is the guy. And even uh, with him being the guy, everybody's kind of figuring out something special has happened. This amazing kind of birth story of how he's protected from the crocodiles and protected from the murdering Egyptians. And not only is he protected, the place that he gets protected is in Pharaoh's house itself. This man who... The Israelites are going to view as the the enemy of the state, number one, is finding safety in their version of the White House. Protection by the very king of Egypt. Being raised up to destroy him. Being raised up to destroy Egypt. Being raised up to free the slaves. Being raised up to free Israel. And it ends up here in verse 10 with this kind of great moment where after uh, Moses has grown up, he's uh, been weaned, he's brought back to Pharaoh's daughter who uh, quite possibly is not terribly uh, much older than he is. Uh, She names him Moses because I drew him out of the water, which is this great kind of uh, double entendre name, which in Egyptian would have meant father of, we don't know who his father is, you know, kind of this joke about his nature and you think this is the moment this is the guy this is the one we've entered the promised land so to speak but not yet until you get to the passage today and verse 11 skips approximately 36 or so years so one day when Moses had grown up at this point in the story Moses is my age He's 39 or 40, somewhere along the way. He's my age. His life is divided up into 40-year segments kind of neatly, and we're going to cover about 80 of them today. He goes from 0 to 40 in verse 11, and he's going to go from 40 to 80 in the last verse of the chapter. He goes out to his people. And it's interesting because here, again, the information is good. You think, all right, praise the Lord. He's he's identifying not with the Egyptians. Those aren't his people. He's identifying with the Israelites, which, again, would be an amazing kind of miracle of sorts to think about. Raised in Pharaoh's home, raised with Pharaoh's resources, raised with Pharaoh's privileges, raised in the house of Egyptian royalty, and he's identifying with the slaves. All right, yay! Yay! Our hope is here. And he's going out to look on their burdens. And think about just the inner turmoil that had to have been for him. His life is easy. The author of Hebrews tells us that he he had the opportunity to enjoy all the pleasures of sin. His life was an easy life in terms of not being enslaved, enjoying great wealth, 
And yet, in verse 11, he watches an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, Hebrew being the slave, Egyptian being the owner and the master, beating him senseless, and the wheels come off. Our great hope is dashed in just a moment in verse 12. One short and simple verse. He looks this way and that. You know what that's called? That's called premeditation. It's not called manslaughter. This is premeditated. He watches the Egyptian beating the Hebrew. He looks that way. He looks that way. No witnesses. And he walks over. And he strikes down the Egyptian. Murder in the first degree. Now, again, not without cause. The master is beating the slave. It's not without cause. He's certainly siding with the victim, but it is premeditated murder. Oh no, what do we do? How did we get here? Our great hero, our great hope, the guy who's going to save the whole story just killed a guy. How did we get here? Hides him in the sand. Yeah, it's the easiest place to hide a body at that place, I guess. I would think chucking it to a crocodile, but that's just me. <laughs> it's my thing with crocodiles. He goes out the next day. I, <laughs> the inner turmoil that man must have felt over that 24-hour span. Going out to do the same thing the next day to check on the progress. At this point, you think his deed has to have come to light in some fashion. One of the Egyptians doesn't report in. You've got to think they know exactly who did it. Or at least they're assuming it's one of the Israelites. So the in- difficulty has probably increased for the slaves. They've been pushed to greater uh, trouble. They've been pushed to greater difficulty. He goes out to watch. Maybe the two Hebrews, maybe, they're arguing because of the difficulty of the labor they're doing. We don't know. And one of them is striking his companion. Moses interrupts. What are you doing, man? Stop it. You get these rhetorical questions that are uh, intended to be slaps in the face returned to him with violence. Who made you a prince and judge over us? And my friends, that question would have been devastating to Moses. Because what it's doing is distancing Moses from the Israel. Who has made him prince and judge over us? Well, he is actually a prince and judge over them. He's raised in Pharaoh's house. What's the guy saying to him? How dare you speak to me like that, Egyptian? Who are you to even talk to us, Egyptian? You're not one of us. You're not an Israelite. On top of that, are you going to kill me as you killed the other Egyptian? Because you kill your own people, you're obviously going to kill me. It's intended as words of violence. Our great hope now being rejected by the Israelites. So not only has he turned into a murderer, he's lost any sense of favor that he had with the people that he would hope to save. Great job being a redeemer, friend. Nice work, Moses. You've ruined your entire ministry in four verses. How did we get here? Moses gets afraid. 
thought, surely the thing is known. Well, yeah, one, one party knew, the Israelite who was being beaten. <laughs> surely the thing is known, I've been caught. Again, as a child, I remember that feeling, don't you, where you know the jig is up. You've been found out. It's now just a matter of time until mom and dad bring the thunder. So Moses does what he thinks is good common sense. He flees. Pharaoh hears of it and tries to kill him. Again, think about, again, the the, the destruction at this point in terms of Moses' own life. Now he's isolated himself from the Israelites. He's been rejected by them. He's being pushed away from them. And the one place of safety he would have, the one place that would have ensured his success in any fashion, that's been taken from him too. He's lost both Israel and Egypt in just a few short verses. So he flees, and he flees to the land of Midian, that great metropolis of Midian. And by that I mean it's probably closer to like central West Virginia. Flees to a place where nobody's going to find him. You know, when all the crazies do evil things and then flee to like, you know, the western North Carolina mountains so that the cops can't get them. It's the same kind of thing. He goes to a place where nobody's going to find him. The great hero of Israel, the great hope of Israel, the great redeemer of Israel is sitting by a well in the middle of absolute nowhere with nobody that likes him, nobody that cares for him. He's going to go eat some worms and that's going to be the end of his story. How did we get here? And you think, oh sure, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get better, right? There's going to be, whoo, there's a good point to this story. It's, it's, it's the Bible, it always has a happy ending, right? We're going we're gonna to get to a, a good encouraging part. Verse 16, you get introduced to a new character, the priest of Midian, who is not a Christian. Now, he becomes one later in the book, but he's not here. Unbeliever, pagan, probably polytheistic, worships all kinds of false gods. He's uh, what we would call uh, bad. He has seven daughters. I assume he has a complicated life. The implication is that they don't, he doesn't have sons and that his daughters are not married, which again, I assume he has a complicated life. So much so that these seven daughters are caring for his flocks and they come up to the well and wells are extremely significant in a land that has limited water. The well is uh, central for life. It's necessary for life. It's also a meeting place. It's a place where you could do business. It's a place where you have conversation. It's a good place to sit if it's not in the middle of nowhere. And the shepherds come up on one side and the seven daughters come up on the other and the shepherds begin to act like scoundrels and ruffians and begin to throw the girls out to get rid of them. In verse 17, Moses stands up and confronts the shepherds. And you're thinking... Friend, did you not learn? I mean, it's like seven verses, buddy. Because eight verses, you just did this and you killed a man. And now you're doing it in a place you don't know for people you don't know about customs you don't know, but they're pretty girls. Maybe. Maybe not. It also speaks a little bit to the kind of man that Moses is. He's allying himself with the victim. He's allying himself with the lesser. 
Also gives us a heads up that he's probably a fairly robust fella. To the point where he's able to scare off all of the shepherds and then do the work of seven farm girls. That's a lot of work. To the point where dad's actually shocked when they get home. He's like, how did you guys do what you did? Well, we had an Egyptian. Big fella showed up. (laughs) He pulled the water up the well. He got us taken care of. He's a big fella. But he took care of us. In verse 20, you can kind of read as a great dad with seven daughters who aren't married. Wait, you met a big fella who helped you and didn't hurt you. Where is he? (laughs) Why did you not bring him here? Why did you not bring him home? You're not married yet. You should have brought him. Well, okay, so they go out, grab him. He comes back, and the story kind of accelerates, and they hit it off at least well enough. He stays in the uh, pagan priest's house and then marries a daughter named Bird, Zipporah, and they have a son, which is uh, named, a complicated name. (laughs) I am a sojourner in a foreign land. It's probably a double entendre as well, but it's referring to, I, I don't belong here. And you get to this point in the story and you have to ask it, how did we get here? All of the good things that we would have expected to happen have fallen apart in chapter one. And then the guy who's supposed to fix it is now hiding in the middle of central West Virginia, staying at a pagan priest's house naming his children, oh yeah, by the way, I don't belong here, I'm an alien everywhere I live, I have no friends, I have no hope, I'm going to eat some worms. <laughs> and again, we, it's the hard part about preaching passages we all know and love. We know the story ends well. And sometimes we kind of skip the emotional process to get there. Because at the end of verse 22, it's not a good story. And in Moses' life, it's not a good story. I mean, like I said, the guy's in the middle of nowhere. He's living with a pagan priest. For four decades, he lives with a pagan priest. Until he's 80. And the Lord calls him and raises him up as a, as a deliverer. How did we get here? Again, I introduced the sermon with that same question, how do we get here? But I put together a couple of interesting and silly stories or dumb things that I did when I was younger and things that the Lord has obviously brought me through. But there are many of us that are actually asking that same kind of question now. How do we get here? Where did those perceived blessings go? Where did the difficulty come from? How did I run into such problems with my job? How did I run into such problems with sin? How did I get into so much confusion? Where did all of this pain come from? I wasn't ready for it. It jumped on me. I never saw it. This illness that's bothering me. 
This difficulty that's driving me crazy. I'm at wit's end. How did I get here? Everything was so good. You see, it's the danger, again, with passages that we know and love is that we skip the parts that are important. We skip the fact that Moses spends 40 years in this place. A place of isolation. A place of longing. Raising a son whose every time he has to call him is a reminder that he's separated from his people. He's separated from his place. He's not where he's supposed to be every time he calls him. I I might have chosen a different name if it's going to be that painful, but that's what he chose. How did we get here? I recognize some of us, that's the question we ask every day, isn't it? We're in the middle of those 40 years of difficulty. And that's our question. How do we get here? What happened to all the good things? How did we get here? Well, for those that are particularly in the midst of that, In the midst of that sorrow and in the midst of that suffering, I love how Moses himself tells this story. Uh, Verse 22, you have it in this just poignant moment of sorrow with naming his child, this name of longing. And then the end of verse 22, it really skips ahead about 40 years. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. In fact, actually, if modern archaeology is right, and I'm not really sure it is, it's not only this pharaoh died, the next one, who was his stepmother, also died, quite possibly. And a new one comes in. And you would hope maybe it gets better for Israel, but in fact, actually, it doesn't. The people of Israel groan because of their slavery. They cry out for help. It just continues to get worse. How did we get here? This is where I would make a couple of brief points in terms of applying the passage and thinking through it. First, be reminded God's timing does not match yours. It takes what? 38 seconds to read verses 11 through uh, 22. And that's if you read them with like feeling and emphasis and slowly, right? That's how we like our suffering to be, isn't it? About 38 seconds long. I mean, most of us are like, I can handle difficulty if it's 38 seconds of difficulty. We forget that our timing doesn't match God's. That his purposes are greater than ours, that his understanding is greater than ours. And in our limited horizon, in our limited moment, in our limited perspective, it seems like forever. But friends, God is at work. Next you get to see, as Moses tells us, the Lord loves to listen to his people. I love how he's designed this to read. Well, those days it gets worse. 
And so they cry out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery comes to God and God heard their groaning. And you have to wonder, we don't fully know the mind of the Lord. How much of his design was simply to bring about the cry itself? How much of his design for the difficulty was to bring forth that longing? To bring forth the desperate clinging to him? To bring forth that my only hope is that God would save I can tell you, my opening story, fleeing into the park, dragging ponytails behind me, thinking we're all about to blow up. That's my hope. Oh, God, please show mercy. Show mercy. Don't kill any of us. Because if I die, these kids will never make it home. They will be lost on the streets forever. I know their sense of direction. If they are taken home, I don't know if I would be able to face their parents. Oh, God, show mercy. He loves the cry for help. He loves the desperate clinging to him. I suspect also that's part of why sometimes suffering for some of us tends to be a little bit cyclical. Where we hit those deep and dark and low points and we have that desperate longing for God and he helps us out of it and then we forget him. Like the book of Judges. Until desperate times hit again and we're and then he helps us and then we forget. Verse 24 is unbelievably tender. And God heard their groaning. He heard their sorrow. He heard their longing. He heard all of the difficulty and I love what Moses highlights here. God remembers not the good things they did in the past, not remembered, oh yeah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of the family. He remembers his covenant. He remembers his promise. He remembers that he pledged himself to people and he will take care of them forever because he has pledged That word covenant, you hear often in Presbyterian type circles, it is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. It's a a promise that God makes between God and man that he himself will keep at all costs. It's when we teach our kids a relationship that God establishes with man and guarantees by his word. God remembered his own promises. His promises specifically to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He remembered that he has pledged himself to his people. And friends, if you are in the midst of that season now where you find yourself in this difficulty, you too must cry out to God and you too must remember his covenant. He's pledged himself to take care of you. Now, The news is, he doesn't take care of you the way that you always want. And the reason is because he's much wiser than you are. He's much smarter than you are. It's like, you know, when you have young kids and they're like, I don't feel good. I need seven things of cotton candy to make myself feel better. (laughs) No, that, that, that doesn't make you feel better. That makes you much, much worse. 
No, what you need is sleep. Go to bed. You'll feel better tomorrow. God likewise knows the right solution and he remembers his promises to his people and he will care for his saints. That should hopefully in some sense provide a bit of patience for us that the difficulty that we have now, we even have it later in scripture called this light and momentary affliction. To know that he will be faithful. He will get us through. It may be in this life, it may be in the life to come to be truthful. I mentioned the church in China this week. If you didn't follow the news on that one, the Chinese government went in and uh, captured, and they actually, believe it or not, I hadn't seen this one yet. It was new. They took the pastor to an undisclosed location, which I'm hoping means still alive, but not guaranteed, and they arrested the entire congregation, or like two-thirds, three-quarters of the congregation, and they are imprisoned themselves for resisting the Chinese government by reading the Bible outside of their permission. God's going to be faithful to those people. He's going to be faithful to that man who's preaching. It may be in the life to come. It may already be in the life to come. I don't know. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. I, lo- I love this verse. 25 is my favorite of them all. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That, and God knew, I, I suspect means more than just God was aware of it. No, God was aware of their suffering. He knew how bad it was. No, I, th- I think it's much more than that. I think there's an intimacy that he is bonded with his people. He knows the depth of the difficulty they go through. He knows the depth of the challenge they have. He knows the depth because it's his discipline most of the time. Because we have a God that is not afar off, but is close in King Jesus. He's bonded himself to us and us to him in Christ so that when he knows us, it's not simply a knowledge afar. It is knowledge of God with us, who is one of us. He's fully human. And God knew This gives us opportunity to do a couple of things in light of a passage like this as to how to respond to those moments. How how did I get here? How to respond to those questions? One, it is a strong and poignant reminder to quickly run to Jesus for help. To quickly cry to him for help because he loves to listen. He knows what you're going through and he loves to help. To quickly return to God with confession of sin, with sorrow over misdeeds, with hope in the life to come, to quickly return to him, but at the same time to know that his quick response might not be as quick as you want, but it's every bit as quick as you need. He's actually quicker in responding than we are in going to him, but his quickness looks different than ours. And again, why? Well, because God will remember his covenant. You see, that's actually a large part of what the cross does. 
That's why we remember uh, not just the birth of Jesus, we remember his death and his resurrection, because in the cross, the new covenant is accomplished. Fully accomplished. It's fully guaranteed. It's fully established. So that we are able to look back on the past to say, look, we know the covenant is for sure because of the blood. In fact, actually, it's one of the great illustrations that's mentioned with this table. This is a covenant in my blood, Jesus says. Do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because we can go back and look at God's promises, how they are and will be accomplished. And if you're one of those people that that doesn't describe your life right now, your life is perfectly easy. Praise God. I mean, be excited about that. But no, it's coming. It's coming. God loves you too much to leave you like that forever. Growth happens in the valleys, not on the mountaintops. It's coming. Besides, we all have to pass through that thing called death at some point. Unless Jesus comes back before then. It's coming. Be ready to cry out to the Lord and trust he will save in King Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for King Jesus. Our greater hope, (laughs) Moses, what a letdown. Jesus never lets down. Thank you for that. We pray that you would even now prepare us for the supper. Covenant in Jesus' blood. In whose name we pray. Amen.